Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now. I'm Rose Campbell, Assistant Director of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, which hosts this podcast. As Earth's population continues to grow, despite the pandemic of the past few years, one topic that frequently appears in policy discussions is that of urban space. More than half the world's population currently lives in cities, and current estimates suggest that by 2050, nearly seven out of every 10 people will live in a major city. As our cities grow larger and more crowded, how do we manage issues of space? How space is allocated, how people use space in crowded urban areas, and what is the role, if any, of empty space in an increasingly overcrowded world? Modern policymakers must consider not only the movement of people and goods within cities, but how open and empty spaces may be used for everything from parades to protests. To understand the deep history of urban development and use of space, here with me today is Dr. Monica Smith. Dr. Smith is an ancient economic historian who uses archaeological data to analyze the collective effects of routine activities through the study of food, ordinary goods, and architecture. She has conducted archaeological fieldwork in many regions of the world, seeking to understand urban environments and economics of the past. Her most recent fieldwork has focused on the Indian subcontinent, a region that has produced some of the world's earliest and most long-lived urban areas. Her most recent book was published by Viking Press in 2019, and is titled Cities, The First 6,000 Years. Monica, thanks so much for joining me today. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start by talking a little bit about your own research. Tell me about your work on ancient cities and urbanism. Can you give us some background on the time period and sites that you study, and what's going on in history during these periods for people who may not be familiar? Being an archaeologist is a wonderful profession, as you know, and it's amazing to be able to go around to different parts of the world and think about how we've inherited the planet that we live on from our ancestors. And I've been fortunate as an archaeologist to work in a number of different areas, uh, places like Egypt and Italy, England, Madagascar, and a variety of places in between. And of course, some of those places have lots of cities now, and others of them don't. But a place that has continually been the most amazing place for me in terms of archaeological research is the Indian subcontinent. And I've had the pleasure and privilege of working with a number of colleagues in Bangladesh and in India looking at ancient urban settlements 
And of course, the Indian subcontinent is a place today where there is a tremendous variety, a diversity, and amount of people. So it's not surprising that there's also a tremendous uh, diversity and variety of archaeological sites. And they range from some of the earliest human occupations, hundreds of thousands of years ago, to places like the Bronze Age cities of Harappa and Mohenjo-daro, and then cities that were associated with the rise of Buddhism and Jainism and many other Indian religious traditions that eventually became Hinduism in the modern and vibrant cities today, along with Islam. So we can see in the occupations of archaeologically known cities in the subcontinent these long-lived traces of human activities and behaviors that then give us a sense of how people have lived in that same landscape for centuries and centuries and centuries. So it is a particularly vibrant place to look at these questions of urban development. Why did cities start? How do cities integrate themselves with the surrounding countrysides? And what are some of the lessons of those cities for the present day? So you mentioned that you're doing a lot of archaeological work on these ancient cities. And I think for a lot of our listeners, the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about archaeology is tombs or temples or burials of some kind. But the study of ancient urban areas is actually becoming more and more common within archaeology. So what was it that first made you want to study ancient cities? And what are the relationships between cities of the past and the present from your view as an archaeologist? So one of the reasons that we do a lot of urban archaeology is that many of our modern cities have ancient remains underfoot. And you'll know this if you've been to New York or London or Paris or Tokyo or Osaka, where when they're doing excavations to put in infrastructure, they're doing archaeological excavations too, because the places that are places that we like to live in, that are convenient for trade and connectivity, are also places that were convenient for ancient urban dwellers as well. So that's one of the things that has always been of interest to me as an archaeologist is what was there before we came on the scene and how did ancient people live in dynamic landscapes? Well, of course, there are other reasons why I'm interested in the archaeology of urbanism, and that is because you know, I think people really study the kinds of things that they like best. And it was when I was in graduate school, living in a small Midwestern town, that I realized that I was really an urban person because I went from Ann Arbor, Michigan to Manhattan as my next place of living. And there was just something about being in the city that had a different kind of vibe to it in every way. And that also was something that inspired me to think about why did people come into cities 
over and over and over again. How is it that cities are so attractive to us, despite all of their obvious disadvantages? The things that we think of as being enticing about cities, employment, education, entertainment, is also enveloped with a lot of things that we don't like. They're expensive, they're polluted, they're crowded. And yet, despite all of those disadvantages, we gravitate towards cities as a species in ways that are really compelling. And I wanted to find out what were the first steps to that urbanizing trajectory, the fact that now so many people live in cities. What were the first steps? Why did people make those initial trade-offs? Why did people first accept and seek out the things that they found exciting and learn to live with the things that they didn't like so much, but just put up with. I love that. As someone who has definitely lived in more rural areas as well as more urban areas, it is really interesting that we are still so drawn to cities. And that actually leads really well into my next question, which is, how do you think that the first cities really changed the ways that people in the past interacted not only with each other, but also with their environment, right? We do interact differently with the natural and built world in urban areas than we do in rural areas. So how do you think those first cities affected those interactions? Well, we can kind of take the way in which cities started as a partial answer to that question. So cities often started in places where you would have a fair or a festival. And instead of going home after the fair or the festival, people stayed and it was a good place for trade and more people came and they started to build more permanent residences. And they started to add some senses of planning spaces so that there was a regularized treatment of things like waste and how people would move about and where the transportation corridors were. And then there were ways that they had to be supported by the surrounding countryside. So for example, food is always coming into cities from the outside. And even though today we might be thinking about things like urban gardening, those things are usually for tomatoes or for um, you know, herbs and spices and things like that. Even if we're very keen on urban gardening, we're not growing potatoes or wheat or corn inside the city. We're depending on people outside for that. And so did people in ancient cities. So food is coming from outside. Fuel is also coming from outside. So in ancient times, it was wood and other kinds of organic fuel. Uh, today, of course, we're thinking about fossil fuels, but even things like solar energy and renewables are things that are being generated someplace else and then brought into the city through conduits. And so people in the city are consumers. They're consumers of raw materials to make specialized products. They're consumers of the fuel and the food and even the water that's coming from the surrounding environment. And they are living in very concentrated ways in urban environments so that they also have to think about what they're doing with their trash. In ancient villages, when we excavate, we see that people are just throwing trash outside the door. Well, that doesn't work so well in areas of concentrated population. You need to have some rules and regulations. You need to have some property laws so that 
people's activities don't impinge on other people's activities. So you start to get this snowball effect of concentrated interactions that draw on the wider countryside to bring things in that people need, but that also create new types of interactions that come about because people are moving in and living with strangers for the first time, which really ought to make us very nervous. Our ancestral capacity is to live in villages of 25 or 50 people where you knew everybody from birth to death. Look around you now in a city. You're surrounded by strangers but you have so many ways of mitigating those interactions in your neighborhoods, in your social groups, in the meetings that you have with people on a regular basis. You're constantly turning strangers into people who are more familiar, which is the great social outcome of what it means to live in a city. So, of course, all of these interactions with different strangers and people that might become friends or not friends. I think what's one of the things that's interesting to me about cities is the different types of spaces that can exist in a city. There's a space for everything, it would seem. And so, you know, for our audience who may not be as familiar with archaeological studies of spaces, in archaeological terms, how can you look at a space within a city or even in a settlement in ancient times And how can you get an idea of how that space might have been used? So in a city, we might think that everything is concentrated and that people build up and make a kind of a 3D space. But cities, both past and present, are also very dependent on what we can think of as 2D space, which is the space that's wide and flat and open. And those spaces are the most flexible because once you design a building, it's permanent, it has long-term internal configurations, which mean that you can't repurpose the building quite so easily. But you can repurpose an open space or a street or a parking lot, anything that is a big open space, you can reconfigure it over and over and over again. So this is why open spaces are so critical to urban life. They can be the scene of a market one day and then uh, public games on another day and then a procession on another day or parade or a funeral march or a political rally. And so an open space is infinitely configured to new and inventive spaces for interactions of the kind that bring large numbers of people together for shared economic or employment or entertainment purposes. But in archaeology, what we're often being guided to do is to look for buildings. And so we write grants and we do excavations because we want to find buildings or workshops or cemeteries or something that produces objects and evidence of architecture. It is rather odd to write a grant to go and deliberately seek out an empty space as an archaeologist. It does sound a bit odd to say, I want to go find out where there is ostensibly nothing. That is certainly a challenge for archaeologists. But 
archaeologists have recently been doing some amazing things with technology to look at these empty spaces for the vibrancy that we know was there, that we occasionally get mentions of in texts, if we have written documents from a particular time period, or if we do things like analyze the dirt from a big open space. And this is what archaeologists have done. They look at the soil to see what has been soaking into the ancient soil that is still present. So things like phosphates that are evidence of human or animal waste so that we can tell if a large area was a place where there might have been an animal market of some kind. We can also look to see if there are traces of pigments or heavy metals to see if that big open space was a place of production where people would have used particular kinds of raw materials. And so even though it might seem difficult to study an empty space, we're actually developing techniques because we have those questions. So the research question, is there empty space, is followed by the new techniques that then let us test our hypothesis and realize the richness of these places that get repurposed in ways that resonate not only with the understandings of the ancient world, but how we also repurpose our spaces. Think about in Los Angeles, the Rose Bowl is a place where we play football, of course, but it's also a place where there is a regular giant flea market. If we think about other public spaces the idea of which we have inherited from ancient times. Think about places like the Forum, which is actually a Roman word that has come to live in our city as well. I love this idea of sort of the flexible use of these open spaces for economic purposes, for cultural purposes, all all different um, ways of using space. So You've mentioned a few parallels, but are there other patterns that we see sort of more broadly um, from ancient cities to modern cities in the way that we use space, not just open space, but but also open space and thinking about um, similarities and differences from the past to the present? So there are many ways that ancient cities look like, feel like our own modern cities because of the things that people need in them. So you've already mentioned the ways in which people use cities or what it is that draws people into cities. And so ancient cities, like modern ones, are places that really depend on infrastructure. And infrastructure is something that people don't often see or perceive except when it breaks because we take it for granted. We take for granted that the water in the faucet or the ancient Roman person would take for granted that the water from the aqueduct would just be there. So one of the things that is absolutely essential for urban configurations is that invisible but absolutely essential infrastructure. And I think we can take a a modern example of a city that is coming into existence right before our eyes, and that is uh, the recent Burning Man episode where you have a place in Nevada where people Tens of thousands of people are coming together to create what they call Black Rock City, 
every year. And every year they come, they build it, and then they dismantle it and they go away. Except this year, in 2023, they got rained on. And because they didn't have any infrastructure, the whole place got flooded. Um, it was very difficult. I think some anthropologists should study what happened at Burning Man this year about how much the social bonds got stretched or broken by the fact that this was a city that was really only skin deep. It did not have all of the things in place like infrastructure to provide water and drain it away. Um, it didn't have a regularized permanent system of transportation. It didn't have a long-term sense of who's coming in and who's going out and who needs to do what. So I think that that might be a wonderful example that is like maybe some urban early failures. We often find ancient cities that survived for many hundreds of years. There are also such things as cities that got started that did not continue for whatever social or environmental reason. And that's also an interesting lesson from the past that there has to be some kind of minimum planning, infrastructure, maintenance, organization, in order to be able to make cities survive these environmental punches that they'll get from things like wind, water, earthquakes, and so on. That said, once you do have that minimal amount of permanent infrastructure, it's very difficult to kill off a city. There are places like New Orleans that keep getting hit by hurricanes over and over and over again. And yet they bounce back because they've got some kind of fundamental tenacity and building parameters that let people ride out the storm, literally and figuratively, and come back. So do you think then that there are ways that modern cities use that infrastructure more or less effectively than ancient cities? I mean, you've just said it's difficult to kill a city. Some of the cities in the ancient world survived for centuries, if not longer. Um, so do you see better techniques in modern cities? Or perhaps are we have we lost some of that infrastructure that worked so well for, for example, the Romans? So we might think about ways in which modern cities use space more or less effectively than ancient cities. I mean, modern cities are clearly much larger than ancient cities would have been, but it's the qualitative differences and similarities that I think are much more important than the quantitative stuff. If we think about what we can do with technology in modern cities, it's not about the existence of the internet that makes modern cities different from ancient ones. Or it's not about the internal combustion engine. Yes, we can get places faster. But the fundamental differences about modern cities and ancient ones have to do with aspects of technology that you might not have thought about. First of all, we're much better at removing things in modern cities than what ancient people would have experienced. We have places that we construct 
and then remove as if there was nothing ever in that lot. So for example, you'll be driving down the street and you'll think to yourself, didn't that used to be a gas station or wasn't that a grocery store and now it's a high rise building? We're really good at just scraping things flat and building something entirely new. Ancient people rarely bothered to bulldoze or clear an area completely. And instead, they just sort of tamped everything down and built a new structure on top. This is why we often have to dig for an ancient city, because what we're doing is we're going down through many, many, many layers of previous occupations where having a built-up area was an advantage to those folks. It was good for draining water. You could get up and see above where your neighbors were. And in modern times, we're just starting all over as if it was a completely flat place. The second place that makes a difference, the second way that cities are using space differently is that in modern times, we are much better at using what's underground. We have many things underground, not only infrastructure like pipes and sewers and things like that, but we also have ways to comfortably allow people to use underground spaces like subways and tunnels. We have a lot of layered infrastructure in our cities in ways that ancient people would not necessarily have experienced. So that's way that spatially we're not only building up through technologies of high rises, but we're also building down in ways that make use of underground spaces. The third way that cities are different and yet also the same is that you can't really predict what is going to be successful. There's a certain kind of vibrancy and spontaneity and serendipity that goes into the making of urbanism in ways that do not fulfill just one person's idea. So here's a modern example. If you build it, they may not come. We have examples from ancient times of great rulers who came in and said, I will build a new city here. And it lasts for about one generation. And then people just leave because it has not become a real city. If this sounds familiar to those of you who have been reading the news reports about a new city that some tech entrepreneurs are wanting to start in Solano County, um, buying a bunch of acreage and uh, proposing to put in a brand new city from scratch with you know all the bells and whistles and so on. So the question is, is that really going to become a city? Is the ability to lay out an area in an open space the thing that really develops an urban vibe? Because the urban vibe is made by the tens of thousands or millions of people who live in that space. If we think about the largest cities in California by population, it's LA, San Diego, San Jose, San Francisco. If we think about the largest cities in California by area, 
you get some surprises. LA and San Diego are still at the top, but the number three is California City. And the number five is Bakersfield. So when you think about the urban vibe in California, it's not just a matter of aerial size, is it? It's about that integration of people into spaces that make an urban aesthetic that can't really be just programmed into existence. That's fascinating. That uh, that makes me think of places like Las Vegas, where it always seems strange that a city exists where there are very few resources to support such a large city, and yet somehow they manage to capture that urban vibe, and there are millions of people that live there, uh, which I find very very interesting. But thinking thinking a little bit more about this this space idea, um, what do you think about? policies about how modern cities implement green spaces, for example, right? So one of the things that's often up for discussion in Los Angeles, for example, is we don't have an enormous amount of city parks, for example. We have Griffith Park, which is amazing and wild and gorgeous, but there are not necessarily as many small green spaces or little community squares that you might find in another city. So I'd like to hear your thoughts a little bit more on how these spaces come into being, how they are intended to be used, but then also how they affect the way that people in cities interact. One of the things we've seen in the past few years is that city uh, spaces of community gatherings, such as parks and things like that, are not only used for rest and rejuvenation, but also for public protest and various other civic activities. So can you talk a little bit more about the way that these open spaces are used and what they're in, how they're intended to be used? So you're right that an attention to open space and public space is a key issue in many cities of the modern world, not only in uh, Los Angeles, but globally speaking, because of the pressure for housing and for workspaces that is resulting in a lot of buildings that are being put in places where there might otherwise be open spaces. And uh, we have to remember that open spaces and greenery and the capacity to put roots into the ground is something that's important not only for people, but also for all of the other creatures that we share our environments with, uh, for animals, for birds, uh, for plants. We're thinking about um, environmental investments in cities that can bring value-added environmental components to urbanism beyond just the aesthetics or beyond just what people need in a space. So this is something that uh, folks at the Sustainable LA Grand Challenge here at UCLA are working on, uh, things that the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability are also working on. How do we make these open spaces something that is helpful for many uh, different constituents other than just the human constituents. In Los Angeles, there's very little flat land uh, left. And so the only way is to either remove something 
or maybe we can get creative. And one of the things that I was talking about at the end of the Cities, the First 6,000 Years book is to think about how we might take those green spaces that do exist in the landscape and that are widely distributed and make them more of a value-added, multi-purpose kind of space. And this would be, for example, using schoolyards that often have grassy areas and open spaces and turning them from just an educational limited use kind of space into a community space. I was very happy to see in a recent Los Angeles Times op-ed that Abby Austin made this suggestion with the idea of you know, converting and opening up some areas of LAUSD property to be able to let the community enjoy those areas during school breaks, uh, after hours, on the weekends, in some kind of structured way uh, that is then an opportunity for communities to benefit from the existence of those open spaces. And there is actually uh, some pilot projects that are going on with Los Angeles Recreation and Parks right now and LAUSD to make that happen. So I think that that's a really wonderful way of thinking about those spaces. When you look at spaces on a map, think how we can creatively make those spaces more widely available. Let's raise another place that constitutes big open spaces in Los Angeles, and those are golf courses. If you look at uh, Google Map or any other map of Los Angeles, you'll see enormous areas in some parts of town that are golf courses that have very limited access to people and yet constitute an amazing opportunity for native plants, for sharing open space, for environmentally sound practices of water management. And, you know, maybe there's a kind of environmental partnership that could be proposed for some of these golf course areas. Many of them were instituted over a hundred years ago when Los Angeles looked much different than it does now. As the city has grown and evolved, maybe some of these kinds of open space places can also be viewed as opportunities for the future. So I think that the important part is to think creatively, not only about our hardscapes like streets and plazas, but also about our softscapes. And uh, this is what I would invite people to do is that when you're going around in Los Angeles, look at all the flat areas and think creatively about how they could be made available, useful, and uh, vibrant for large numbers of creatures, including ourselves. So maybe when space is at a premium, we need to focus more on sharing of space if we're not always able to create new spaces, in other words. I like that. That's a really, that's a really interesting take. So to kind of wrap things up, I'd love to get your takeaway on what lessons we can learn from modern urban development by looking at cities of the past and thinking about, you know, what are some mistakes that we've made and what are some policies we can develop that might help us effectively use space in urban environments moving forward? And you've already mentioned a few examples, but thinking more broadly, how can we learn from the past to inform our present? 
So one of the things that has definitely improved over the long centuries of human urban occupation is that now we are much more aware of social and economic justice in the urban environment. Ancient people were relatively at ease with the idea of extreme wealth disparities. And yet in the modern world, we recognize that things go better when there are more opportunities for everybody. And so that's one thing about urban social justice movements that is implemented into our physical surroundings. So even though some of these challenges may be somewhat intractable, like how do we build you know, bus shelters given different kinds of jurisdictions so that people who are low-income folks uh, have the opportunity to have a commute that makes sense and is climatologically and you know, human-friendly. We are much more aware of the fact that a commute means different things to different people. So a person who's commuting an hour between Malibu and Hollywood in their Lexus is getting social prestige out of their commute. A person who's commuting that same length of time by bus from South Central to Long Beach is having the opposite family and individual effect. So things that are statistical, like commute times, really need to be broken down into how people are moving around in the city and what kinds of things they need from those flexible, empty spaces in their neighborhood in order to be able to have a better life in the urban context. We're much more aware now of the differential impact of gender and age in the way that people use cities. And because more people are enjoying a longer lifespan on average than was ever possible in the ancient world, we are in a position to think about the use of space including the use of open, uninscribed spaces for many different kinds of people who make up our urban environments. And we're much more aware of various kinds of safety and the ways in which people can move around, both you know, physical safety and psychological safety in terms of lighting and other things that make everybody feel welcome in an urban environment in ways that are, I think, refreshingly different and an upward evolution from the past. So although we might think of urban centers as places of challenges, they are with us forever. We cannot envision going back to a world of villages. We are in an urbanized world and we can leverage that urbanized world for improvement and for the ideas of all the things that cities bring to us that we would never be able to get any other way. Well, Monica, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Then and Now. This has been such a thoughtful and rich discussion, and I really appreciate your time. And thank you for connecting our past and our present in such a thoughtful way. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. 
You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Rosalind Campbell with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.